0: Okay, so tonight we're going to start with a general overview of probability concepts. Um, The objectives in this first section, in fact I'm just going to call this Part 1, Review Part 1, we're going to apply the rules of probabilities, compute and interpret probabilities using empirical method, and then again using classical method. Um, We're not going to simulate, because that takes a lot of time off the clock, but we'll talk about simulations. We have a project that involves simulation, so that'll take care of that. Um, Recognize and interpret subjective probabilities. Okay. So there's basically three types of probability. Uh, Subjective probability, which is not based on mathematics, it's based on hunches. Like what's the probability you'll get an A in this course kind of thing. Um, then Then there's empirical probability, which is based off of past events. And then there's classical probability, which is that where you're counting the number of successes and dividing by the total number of outcomes, which we'll see in a moment. Okay, so probability is a measure of the likelihood of a random phenomenon or chance behavior. Probability describes the long-term proportion which uh, a certain outcome will occur in situations with short-term uncertainty. It's a mouthful. Most people say it's um, chance or likelihood that an event will occur. Um, it's asking us to use the probability applet to simulate flipping a coin a uh, hundred times. What I really want to get at, I'm not actually going to perform that simulation, but I want to compare empirical versus theoretical, or empirical versus classical probability. Okay, In classical probability, if you were going to flip a coin a hundred times, a fair coin, you would expect you know that fifty out of a hundred is the probability of, say, getting heads. Okay? That's in classical probability. How come that's classical probability? Because we're counting the number of successes and dividing by the total possible outcomes. Okay? Um, empirical probability is what happened during your trials, during your experiment. So what if I did flip the coin a hundred times and found that twenty out of hundred times I got heads? What would you say about the coin? Is the empirical probability really close to the classical probability? No, so perhaps the coin wasn't fair. Okay. So big note to self, <laughs> empirical is what you get from a simulation or experiment, and classical is what you get from a from formula. Okay, so probability um, deals with experiments that yield random short-term results um, or outcomes, yet reveal long-term predictability. The long-term proportion in which a certain outcome is observed is the probability of that outcome. Law of large numbers, this we are familiar with. As the number of repetitions of a probability experiment increases, the proportion with a certain, with which a certain outcome is observed gets closer to the probability of the outcome. For example, If I only flip that coin four times, maybe, I'm. if I only do it four times, maybe I'm going to get just one out of four is the probability of getting heads, okay? But if I flip that coin a thousand times, maybe I'm going to get 499 out of a thousand. So, in other words, the more I run that experiment, the more I flip that coin, that empirical probability better converge to the classical probability, okay? Okay. I think it's Okay, in probability, an experiment is any process that can be repeated in which the results are uncertain. I like an experiment, I like the word experiment, it's basically any process that generates data. Um, the sample space S of a probability experiment is a collection of all possible outcomes we're giving you the language first, we're going to get into the math here in a second. An event is any collection of outcomes from a probability experiment. An event may consist of one outcome or more than one outcome. For example, you know, what if my experiment is to go out and have three kids? Okay, and what's the probability that they're all boys? We're going to look at that in a moment as well. So the event um, would be probability of getting all boys. BBB. Um, here we go. Consider the probability, now this is a, a slightly easier version of what I just asked. I mean, there's only two kids. So have the experiment be having two kids. Identify the outcomes of the probability experiment. Okay, so let's, let's practice using this language. Okay, outcomes. What are all the possible outcomes of the probability experiment? Well, if you're having two kids, you could have... Yeah, well, I was kinda listening to that. Yeah, you could have boy, boy. I heard boy, girl. Yeah, girl, girl, and girl, boy. Okay. Determine the sample space. Well, we kind of did that. Um, Identify the outcomes, one, two, three, four, so four outcomes. And we actually listed, this is the sample, we kind of killed two birds with one stone. This is the sample space when you're listing all possible outcomes of the experiment. Um, And then define the event E where you have just one boy? Well, we can see the probability of event E having just one boy is what? There's two ways for that to happen, right? So two out of four, which is a 50% chance of that happening. So, um, well, We lucked out in this problem because we were only having two kids, so it was easy for us to think about the sample space in our mind. But I do want to mention that if you were going to have three kids, let's make a little sidebar here. Oops, it's being fussy. If you were going to have three kids, um, well, you you would want to use a tree diagram to help you think about it. Boy-girl, stemming from that boy-girl, stemming from that boy-girl. My question for you, if you haven't used a tree diagram in a while, why does my tree diagram have three tiers on it? Oops, no, it's acting weird. So um, I did want to mention that, it, yeah, if you're having those three kids, it will help you list all the outcomes to do the tree diagram. So like boy followed by boy followed by boy, boy followed by boy followed by girl, boy, girl, boy, boy, girl, girl. Girl, boy, boy. Girl, boy, girl. Maybe you're catching up to that. Um, Girl, girl, boy. And girl, girl, girl. Which looks like 666, but (laughs) the way I'm writing it. Um, So there's eight total possible outcomes if you were having that. And now you say, okay, now what's the probability of getting all boys? Well, there's only one way for that to happen. But there's eight total possible outcomes. So that would be one out of eight. Okay? Just something to think about. So we're looking at the PowerPoint, um, although we just did it ourselves, and um, it lists for Part A. It lists the uh, outcomes. I don't know why I keep that. Okay, rules of probability. The probability of an event E, this is the where the good stuff happens, uh, must be greater than or equal to zero and less than or equal to one. So we denote that P of E has to be somewhere in between zero and one, and that makes sense because when we were talking about you know the probability of selecting a king. Well, you said that's 4 out of 52. Well, 4 out of 52 is a decimal, which lives in between 0 and 1. So probability is always in between 0 and 1. The sum of the probabilities of all the outcomes of the experiment must equal 1. That is, if the sample space is all these various events, then the probability of the various events added together has to equal 1. This rule here might not make intuitive sense until we look at a problem in a moment. Um, a probability model lists the possible outcomes of a probability experiment and each outcome's probability. The probability model must satisfy those rules that we just talked about. So let's see. Here we go. So we have a bag of M&Ms. We have various colors here. What they want us to do is verify that this is a probability model. So big note to self. Are all of the prob- what they really want you to say is, are all the probabilities something in between 0 and 1? Check. They are. There's no there's no negative probabilities. And the other thing is, is the sum of the probabilities equal to one? Question. So if I add all these up, do I get one? Yes. Mm -hmm. Survey says. (laughs) Yep, all probabilities are between zero and one. And (laughs) there it reappeared. And yes, it satisfies rules one and two. Very good. Okay, we, in terms of language, we say that an event is impossible if the probability is zero, it's certainty if the probability is one. An unusual event, according to your author, and from now till the end of the semester, when we do hypothesis testing, they're going to say, is what we're observing unusual? And to your author, that means let's look for a less than five percent chance. So if the probability is less than .05, is unusual. Um, objective two, compute and interpret probabilities using empirical method. Uh, we've mentioned this before, empirical method is just you counting the frequency of event E and dividing by the number of trials and experiment. So, I'm just going to say this in words. Suppose my batting average which would be terrible, but. (laughs) Suppose my batting average is um, .032. Can anybody translate what that means in terms of empirical probability? Okay, so if we had, if we had to translate that, um, look at the place value. Tenths, hundreds, thousands. That means out of a thousand at-bats, we're looking at 32 hits. That's just an, and I always think of Shaquille O'Neal. They always talk about his foul shots being bad. So, you know, out of 20 foul shots, how many is he going to make? Maybe three. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pass the Pigs is a game in which pigs are used as dice. So we have another probability model here. Um, there are six um, oh, points are earned based on the way the pig lands. There are six possible outcomes when one pig is tossed. Um, a class of 52 students rolled pigs 3,939 times. The number of times each outcome occurred is recorded in the right of the table. So this is a, what you call a probability model. You have frequencies here. But we would like to turn those into yeah, percents, yeah, relative frequencies. So use the results of the experiment to build your model for the way the pig lands. Estimate the probability that a thrown pig lands on a side with a dot. And would it be unusual to throw a leaning jowler? So, unusual. Now we know that means less than 5%. And this bit about estimating the probability that the pig lands on the side with a dot. Well, you're looking at 1294. That's the frequency, but you have to divide that by the total number of observations. And you don't have to worry about performing that division now. I'll do that in the next step. So, side with no dot, 1344. You divide it by the total number of trials, total number of outcomes. 34% chance of that happening. You can see that we did that the whole way down. So leading Jower, small probability to your author, and on the online homework they're going to consider that unusual. Less than 5%. Okay, next objective, classical method. Remember, we say classical method would probably involve some sort of a formula, unless you have a table to read. The classical method of computing probabilities requires equally likely outcomes. Um, an experiment is said to have equally likely outcomes when each simple event has the same probability of occurring. Um, probability of getting, so there's six faces on a die, you've got a one out of six chance of getting a one or a two or a three or four or a five or a six, for example. Um, and it's a fair die. Computing probabilities using the classical method, I mentioned this before, we're basically going to count the number of successes in the numerator and divide it by the number of possible outcomes. Uh, computing probabilities, uh, this is more and less notation. I want to expose you to the notation. So the probability of event E is basically the number of ways that event E can occur divided by the total number in the sample space. It's just notation. Unless you're a math major, I wouldn't even be concerned with the notation so much, except for the fact that you have to know what it means on a homework. Um, Computing probabilities using classical method. Here we go. So we have M&Ms, nine brown, six yellow, seven red, four orange, two blue, two green. Suppose a candy is randomly selected. What's the probability that it's yellow? Okay, so we took a look and we said, well, there's 30 total candies, six out of 30 chance of getting a yellow, two out of 30 chance of getting a blue. The likelihood of getting yellow is almost three times as likely than you getting a blue and this is just reporting what you did. I'm going to skip the simulation problems. Subjective probabilities, that's based on hunch. Subjective probability is an outcome, of an outcome is a probability obtained on personal judgment or hunches. For example, an economist predicting there's a 20% chance of recession next year would be a subjective probability. Um, in fall 1998, uh, Chance Magazine, Hal Stern investigated the probabilities that a particular horse will win a race. He reports that these probabilities are based on the amount of money bet on each horse. When a probability is given that a particular horse will win a race, is this empirical, classical, or subjective? Yeah, you know, I'd, have to, I'd have to know more about horse betting, I think. Um, what the author is saying is, it's based upon people's feelings about which horse, I do, that's true, people like the name, uh, oh, golden fly, okay, yeah, <laughs> yeah, they do based on the name, yeah, so, it is based upon people's feelings about which horse will win, the probability is not based on a an ex- probability experiment or counting equally likely outcomes, so it's not by some sort of a formula. So that, alright, I'm going to hit pause, alright. I'm gonna call this um, the second part of the review. For you guys, it's uh, 5.2 in your book, but I'm just gonna call it part two. Um, use the addition rule for disjoint events. Use the general addition rule and compute probability of an event using the complement rule. So basically we would love to master all those concepts before the end of this set. Objective one. Use the addition rule for joint events, for disjoint events. Two events are disjoint if they have no outcomes in common. Um, Another name for disjoint events is mutually exclusive events. So there's still vocabulary. They're going to ask you, so how about I select a king or I select an ace? Are those mutually exclusive events? Yeah, because you can't be a king and an ace simultaneously. So um, watch out for those words, is what I would say. Alright, a Venn diagram. If it's been a while since you've seen a Venn diagram, we often draw pictures um, of events using Venn diagrams. These pictures uh, represent the sample space. So here, basically, I'm going to cut it short. You have two circles that aren't touching. So if you're trying to diagram events that are disjoint, your circles aren't touching. What if they are overlapping? Then that means that the overlapping part is where the joint probability occurs, and we're going to look at joint probabilities in a moment. But for example, suppose we randomly select a chip from a bag where the chips are labeled zero through nine, E represents the event, you know, choose a number less than or equal to two, and F represents, you know, choose a number greater than or equal to eight. These events are disjoint, as shown, um, because numbers, numbers greater than or equal to eight are eight and nine, and the numbers, you know, less than or equal to two are 0, 1 and two and there's nothing in common. Sometimes your events might have something in common and then the circles are overlap. and I think you guys know that. Little more notation. The probability of event E, uh, apparently I skipped that, is 30%. Oh, they're probably just gonna illustrate that. So yeah, you've got a three out of 10 chance of, of event E occurring you've got a 2 out of 10 chance of event F occurring. Now they're just talking about, so when you see this notation, a lot of people see that notation and they freak out, but you see it's actually nothing complicated. I'll hit Alright, so we have a 20% chance of event F, and um, probability of event E or F, or is going to mean union. You're noticing 30% plus 20% makes 50%. So I do want to add some language to this one. Be on the lookout for this symbol. So what we're basically seeing, now we're going to make a rule. I'll put it in a big box. So, so the probability of event A or B is equal to the probability of event A plus the, proba- plus the probability of event B if they are what? Disjoint. Yeah, if they're disjoint events. If A and B are disjoint. So when I say they, I mean events A and B are disjoint. So that's what enabled us to do that, okay? One would imagine that if they're not disjoint, we're going to have to do something else. Okay, so there it's written (coughs) fairly formally. The probability of E or F is equal to the probability of E plus the probability of F. Um, The addition rule for disjoint events can be extended to more than two events. So, and I do, I, I like that your author's trying to make it simple here by saying or, but just bear in mind that or means union. So, it's just saying you could extend that rule to more, to more events, adding multiple events together. Okay, so here we have another probability model, Part A, it says verify that it's a probability model. I'll save you the sweat, <laughs> but all you would do is add up all those decimals and make sure they add up to one, right? Um, the probabilities are between zero and one, none of them are negative, negative. Um, and we can double-check that, they add up to one. And they're probably going to start asking us questions about that. Um, What is the probability a randomly selected housing unit has two or three rooms? Ah, now here's where they get you. It's all language in this chapter. Two or three rooms. What should I do? Or means? Add. Add. Yep, so what should I do with these two? So we add those two, and we get our answer, okay? And we're really just talking through what to do. What's the probability a randomly selected housing unit has one, or two, or three rooms? And now you know exactly what to do. You're just going to take this, plus this, plus this. So it's okay to add those, because they're, they're disjoint events. So a little over 13% chance of that. General addition rule, now it goes a little deeper here. Because sometimes overlap exists. So I'm going to write this more symbolically. So the probability of E or F, written like that, is equal to the probability of E, plus the probability of F, minus the intersection. The probability of E intersect F. And you guys did that earlier. When I said, what's the probability of getting an ace and a club? You said, well, okay, 4 out of 52 plus 13 out of 52 minus the 1 out of 52. So what you were actually doing was utilizing this rule, where you were subtracting out the overlap. Aha, we knew this was coming. Suppose that a pair of dice are thrown. Let E be the first die as a 2, and let F be the sum of the dice is less than or equal to 5. Find the probability of E or F using the general addition rule. Um, I'm gonna hit pause on that. Okay so the first thing you do is really just put your eyeball on where the first die is a 2. So we see there's 6 out of 36 ways for that to happen. We'll do this in different colors. Then you put your eyeball on where the sum is less than or equal to 5. Well that happens on a lot of these. Oops right about here. Right? So 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. So 10 of those. But some of them, I think it's this button here, some of them, you know, overlap. There exists an overlap. So where the first one was a 2, so that would happen here, 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 where the first die was a 2 and it was also counted in the blue group. Let's take a look at the math. You knew it that there was a six out of 36 chance of event E, which is the first die was a, was a two. There was a 10 out of 36 chance of event F happening. Um, and then there was that three out of 36 chance of the overlap. Survey says, use the rule, 13 out of 36. Okay, so the last rule that we're going to cover for this segment, then then we'll take a break, is the the use of the complement rule. Easiest way I can say the complement rule is this. I know this is going to say it in a different way in a moment, but it's easier the way I think about it. 1 minus the probability of event A happening is equal to the probability of event A not happening. Think about it. If there's a 20% chance of rain, well, what's the chance it's not going to rain? See? You just use the complement rule. (laughs) 80%. What I'm getting at is 1 minus the probability that something does not happen is equal to the probability that it does. Okay, that's the complement rule. So when you see that notation there, that little C hovering up there, A complement means the opposite of A. So the opposite of raining is not raining. Okay? Um, Let's take a closer look. Let S denote the sample space of a probability experiment and let E denote an event. The complement of E, denoted EC like that, is um, all outcomes in the sample space that are not outcomes in event E. I like to think of it as, you know, E complement is the opposite of E happening. So, um, the probability that I attend a certain event is 10%. Okay, then the probability that I don't attend is 90%. Um, the complement rule. That's written how I said it before. The probability of event E not happening is equal to one minus the probability that it does happen. There's the entire region. And what they, I think it got blanked out there. If event E is in green, then E complement is basically everything outside of E. Yeah, the area outside is e-complement. Okay. Um, according to the American Veterinary Medical Association, a little over 31 percent of American households own a dog. What's the probability that a randomly selected household does not own a dog? And we know now, whatever 100 percent minus 31.6 percent is, it's like getting the opposite. Um, yeah, about 68%. This use of the complement rule, the biggest thing I can tell you is, in our near future, is it actually going to be easier to calculate the opposite of something happening than to directly calculate that something happening? Yes. <laughs> Big time. It's going to happen a lot. Um, okay. This one, we were just reading a table. Shouldn't be too hard. Um, here we're looking at uh, travel time to work for residents of Hartford County. What's the probability a randomly selected resident has a travel time of 90 or more minutes? So you should be looking at that thinking, well, I'll just take 4895 and divide it by the whatever the total is, which is ginormous, okay? I'll save you the sweat, (laughs) you don't have to crunch that out. (laughs) So um, yeah, so we'll take the 4895, we've got the total number here in the sample space, so the total of that many residents, okay? There's a lag and it's thinking. Um, the residents in Hartford County, the the probability a randomly selected resident will have a commute time of 90 or more is 4895 divided by the total in the sample space, which is, oh, 0.012. Is, so is that unusual? Yes. Yes. You say, well, who deems that unusual? Well, we're just following the works of the author here <laughs> in this. Um, We'll talk more about why 5% is the magical number when we get to hypothesis testing. Um, compute the probability that a randomly selected resident um, will uh, will have a commute time less than 90 minutes. Well now you realize we don't have to add up all those things prior to the 90 minutes. We can just take 1 minus the thing that we just found. We can take 1 minus the .012. So what I'm getting at is sometimes it's easier to direct to calculate the opposite and take one minus it, rather than to add up all those other ones, it would be a longer path. Okay, that's it for the complement rule. We're going to hold. Okay, so we're going to continue with our survey of, of probability rules and concepts. Um, objectives for this part is to identify independent events, um, use the multiplication rule for independent events, and compute at least probabilities. I see it appearing and reappearing. Um, One thing I can tell you is this, when we start to get into problems where they say, what's the probability that at least two people do this? At least, that's your trigger for the complement rule. I can tell you that much. Big note to self, use complement rule. Meaning, rather than directly calculating the probability of event A, take 1 minus, take the opposite of A and then take 1 minus it. So 1 minus the probability of A complement. So we're going to quickly see where that complement rule comes into play. Um, The multiplication rule for independent events, I'll just write it out, basically says that the probability of A and B, if A and B are independent, notice I use the AND symbol, which is the intersection, is equal to the probability of A times the probability of B. So for example, the probability that I have a cavity when I go to the dentist has no bearing on whether you have a cavity when you go to the dentist. Those are independent events. So the probability that we both get cavities when we go to the dentist is my probability times your probability, not plus. That's the, and that makes sense because the probability that something happens to both of us simultaneously should be less than one of us alone. Okay? Um, let's take a look. So identify independent events. Two events are considered independent if the occurrence of event E in a probability experiment does not affect the probability of event F. So they have no bearing on each other's probabilities. Um, They are dependent if the occurrence of event E affects the probability of event F. So now this question of are two events independent or not. Example. Um, Suppose you draw a card from a standard 52 card deck and then roll a die. The events are draw a heart and roll an even number. Um, Bless you. Um, Are the events, are are they independent because the results of choosing, bless you, they are independent because the results of choosing a card do not impact the results of the die toss. So they're just, here they're just trying to give you an example of two events that are independent. So the probability that I draw a heart has no bearing on whether I roll an even number. Two independent events um just word wise suppose two 40 year old women who live in the US are randomly selected the event that woman one survives the year and woman two survives the year are independent um, that that notion of random selection now you say well they're twins then we have a different <laughs> we have a different situation but um, then I can still be mm-hmm. see independent unless the two like live with each other and are actively influencing children's and lives. You're, you're about to hit the nail on the head right here. Suppose, suppose the two 40-year-old women live in the same apartment complex. You know, maybe there's something in there that's causing cancer or whatever it may be. Um, then the events woman 1 survives the year and woman 2 are dependent. Okay. And also you can think about it with or without replacement. If woman 1 doesn't survive the year, remember we talked about total possible outcomes? You know, say there's 50 women in that apartment complex that you're selecting from. If woman one doesn't survive, how many more women are there to select from? For woman two to survive, you know what I mean? It's going to go down. It's kind of like this notion of with or without replacement. Which we're going to get into in a moment. Um, Use the multiplication rule for independent events. We had mentioned that earlier, but here it is formally. The probability of E and F is equal to the probability of E times the probability of F, assuming that those are independent events. Okay, so let's use it. So the probability that a randomly selected female survives, uh, age 60 years old, will survive the year is is 99%, little over 99%, according to the NVSR. What's the probability that the two randomly selected 60 year old females will survive the year? Now here we're assuming that they're independent um, events, they're randomly selected, and a lot of people say, well how should I assume that? Well, there'll be something in the wording of the problem that blatantly tells you that they're not, that they're related or that they are dependent. Um, It'll be stated, otherwise we assume that they're independent events. So we're taking the .99186 and we're going to multiply it with the same thing. Oops, Dyslexia. Uh, (laughs) .99186. So yeah, we multiply those two together. Makes sense that the number should go down. So uh, the probability that the survival of the first female is independent of survival of the second female. So we multiply the two and we get .90. So the probability that they both survive the year is it goes down, okay? So you can say, well, what if you selected 70 of them? Okay, well, then you're gonna have .99186 to the 70th power. Okay, another example. A manufacturer of exercise equipment knows that 10% of the products are defective. They also know that 30% of the customers will actually use the equipment in the first year after it's purchased. Unlike mine that's sitting in my basement collecting (laughs) dust. Okay. If there is is one year warranty on the equipment, um, what proportion of the customers will actually make a valid warranty claim? That is awkwardly worded. (laughs) But I think what they're saying is 10% are defective. So what's the probability that you get, what they're really saying is what's the probability that you get a defective? And you know, that basically means that someone simultaneously used it in that first year. Well, let's take a look. Sometimes you have to translate what the author's asking. We assume that the defectiveness of the equipment is independent of the use of the equipment. So, defective and used. Probability being defective, probability being used. What do you do to those two probabilities? You multiply them, yeah. Okay, okay. We can extend the rule, so there we were looking at two events, but what if you have four, five, six events? You can extend that multiplication rule, so the probability of event one times the probability of event two times the probability of event n. Okay, so you can extend that, that's all that's saying. Um, The probability that a randomly selected female age 60 survives the year is this, we know. What is the probability that 4 randomly selected 60, now see that's what I was getting at earlier, you can extend it. So now we know that's going to be .99186. We could expand it or we could just raise it to the, yeah, to the fourth power. So the probability all 4 survive is written out like this, which is the multiplication rule for independent events, which is all four of those times each other. Well, that, look at how that went even further down. The probability that all four of them survived, you get a 96% chance. And now you can imagine it's someone's grim, grim job to work for an insurance company and start wheeling and dealing in inspected values for life insurance. We're going to be out this much money if this person dies, kind of thing. And we're going to look at those problems next chapter, actually. Um, Compute at least probabilities. Remember we said earlier when we see the word at least we know we're going to have to use the complement rule. Okay, same, same statistic here about the 60-year-old female surviving the year. What's the probability that at least one of the 500 randomly selected 60-year-old females will die? Aha, there's no way we're going to directly calculate that. Our calculator might have overload. So let, I'm going to translate a little bit here. The probability that at least one survives, oh wait, actually it doesn't say survives, it says will die, that's tricky. So the probability that at least one will die during the course of the year, now I'm going to translate, is equal to one minus the probability that none will die. See, I'm using the complement rule. And how do you get the probability that none will die? Well, none will die means all will live. Yeah. Well, the probability that all will survive. Now I've got to take 1 minus the probability that all will survive. And how am I going to get that? Well, I can take 0.99186 and raise it to the and raise it to the 500th power and hope that my calculator <laughs> doesn't blow up. So as we knew we were going to do, we would take one minus this, and some calculators, like little calculators, can't handle that, but I think the TIs can. Um, so we get about a 90, let me erase that red writing now, we get about a 98% chance of, of that happening, at least one. Okay, part four, review of probability concepts. Um, compute conditional probabilities and compute probabilities using the general multiplication rule. Um, Clearly this is going to be in the notes, but I'll write it now. Conditional probability notation, probability of A given B, see the slash, the math notation, A slash B, A given B, the probability of A given B is equal to the probability of A intersect B divided by the probability of B alone. I'll hit pause. Yes, so just a reminder that that slash means given, A slash B. The probability that A occurs given that B has already occurred. Um, Compute conditional probabilities. There you go, there's the notation. The notation P of F given E slash E is read as the probability of event F given that event E has occurred. Um, Suppose that a single six-sided die is rolled. What's the probability that the die um, comes up for? Now suppose that the die is rolled a second time, but we are told the outcome will be an even number, that it absolutely will be an even number. What's the probability that the die comes up for? Now that's, to see, that they're trying to, so in other words, if you're, it's kind of like you're already told that the outcome it, it will be an even number. So what you're doing is you're shrinking the sample space. So if somebody says, what's the probability that you roll a four, okay? That's one out of six. But if I say, look, I, I know it's even. I know it's an even outcome. Then what I've done is I've shr- shrinked the sample space to three, and how many of those evens? So what that what that translates to, the probability of four, given that you know it was, given that you know an even occurred, okay? So you, sh- you shrink the denominator, basically. It was a six, and now it's a three. Um, Let's look at it more formally. The first roll, you could get any of those numbers, right? So the probability is a 1 out of 6 chance of getting a 4. Second roll, there's only, you know it's even, so there's only 3 even numbers, so the probability is 1 third. So you're just conditioning it on something that is already known. This notation is what I exposed you to earlier, but it's a little formal. The probability of F given E is equal to the probability of E intersect F divided by the probability of E alone, same thing here, number of ways E and F can occur simultaneously divided by the total number of elements um, in the sample space. Okay? Um, Let's play with the computation a little bit. Uh, A survey was conducted in which 1,017 adult Americans were asked which of the following statements come closest to your beliefs about God. You believe in God, you don't believe in God, but you do believe in a universal spirit or higher power, or you don't believe in either. (laughs) Uh, The results of the survey, remember I told you that most people are good at reading a table? That's what this will be about, and you'll be good at that. The results of the survey, by region of country, are given in a table. So this table, is called a contingency table, and you're going to see these a lot. Believe in God, believe in some universal spirit, don't believe in either. Okay. It's hard not to get in a debate about that. But anyway, what is, what is the probability that a randomly selected adult American who lives in the East believes in God? Ah, see, so be on the lookout. You know that they live in the East. Okay, well how many of those? So I better get the what? See, I shrink the sample space to only the people that live in the East. So whatever 204 plus 36 plus 15 is. And then I look at those that believe in God from the East, which is 204. And you'll see. So that translates to the believe in God given that they live in the East. So 204 out of, you know, those three numbers added together, you got an 80% chance. I'll hit pull Okay, um, what's the probability that somebody lives in the East given that they believe in God? See how they switched it? My hint is whatever comes after the slash should be the number in the, uh-huh, in the denominator. So how many total people believe in God? Well, we'd add up those numbers. That's what's going to go in the denominator. All right, so there's... Probability that you live in the east, given that you believe in God, that's a 26% chance. See how it switched? The language switched. My my biggest hint to somebody first learning probability like this is whatever follows the word "given," whatever follows the slash, now you know that that's the in the denominator. Okay. Let's try again. Um, of all murder victims were between the ages of 20 and 24. This was in 2005. Also in 2005, 16.6% of the victims were 20 to 24 year old males. What's the probability that a randomly selected murder victim in 2005 was male, given that the victim was in that age group? First thing I do with this kind of problem is I translate, because I know the author's trying to mess with my head. (laughs) So I start translating. The probability that someone's male, given, given means slash, that they're, you know, this, this old. Given 20 to 24 years old. Well, now I know the formula. I'm supposed to take the probability that they're male intersect that they're that age, divided by the probability that they're that age, that they're of that age group. Let's just kind of follow the formula. All right, well the probability that you're male and that age group. Well, let's see, 19.1 percent of all the victims were of this age group. Let's see if we can extract it. But then it says, in 2005, it says that 16.6 percent of the victims were males of that age group. So, long story short, what number is going to go in the numerator? So you have to extract that from the paragraph. This information here is the intersection of being male and being of that age group. It's the simultaneous occurrence of that, that 16.6%. Where does that 19% go? Well, that's the probability that they're of a certain age group, that 19%. So a lot of this is, you know, deciding on what's going to go in the numerator and what's going to go in the denominator. That's not easy. We crunch that out. See? The probability that you're male and that age group divided by the probability you're that age group. Same with what I just listed there. I'll hit pause. Okay, let's skip to the next one. Compute probabilities using the general multiplication rule. Now this is where the two, where the two events are, we know that you can multiply two probabilities if event E and F are independent. What if they're not independent? Now we got another rule. Okay? So the probability of E and F, and it's sometimes written as E intersect F, like that, is equal to the probability of E times the probability of F, given that E has already occurred. Let's take a look. Um, All of these are, those rules are written out in your book on the review in the back of Chapter 5. 19.1% of all murder victims are between this age group, we know this. Um, now it says that 86.9 of the murder victims were male, given that the victim, sees, so I translate, were male, given that the victim was a certain age group. Okay? What's the probability that a randomly selected victim was a 20 to 24-year-old male? So the probability that you're a 20 to 24-year-old male is equal to and you're a ver- and let me write it that way. Probability that you're 20 to 24 year old male, and you're a murder victim. It's kind of grim, <laughs> um, but is equal to what? Is equal to the probability of the one event times the probability of the other event, given that the first one had already occurred. So. The thing is, we know both of these probabilities. Um, The probability that they're male, um, given that they're 20 to 24 years old, we know this, they're giving it to us in the paragraph, that's the .869. Um, The probability that they're of a certain age group, 19%, .191. Okay, so we're still, Following that rule that it looks like we're still following the multiplication rule for independent events Except they're not independent They're dependent on one another still following the multiplication rule is what I can say. It's called the general multiplication rule Let's take a more formal look so the probability that you're male and I'm gonna write that here and 20 to 24 is equal to the probability that you're 20 to 24 times the probability that you're male given that you're 20 to 24 Take away my writing there. Li- doesn't doesn't like me there. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know why it does that. Okay. And which is what I had said, is not as formally. So you take the .869 times .191. Um, sometimes it's blatantly written out in the language like that. Sometimes it's not, and you have to figure it out. Uh, okay. Final one. I'm going to make a new podcast for this, Counting Techniques. Okay, so we're headed into part five of our probability review on counting, and we're going to be heading into counting techniques today. Okay, so in this part five of our review, these are our objectives. We want to be able to solve counting problems using the multiplication rule, uh, using permutations, combinations, we want to figure out how to uh, solve counting problems involving permutations with non-distinct items. And I always say, you know, learn how to do it with distinct items first and then do non-distinct items. But uh, And then compute probabilities involving permutations and combinations. Okay, let's take a look. Solve counting problems using the multiplication rule. Objective one. Here's the multiplication rule. If a task consists of a sequence of choices and where where there are P selections of the first choice, Q of the second, and R for the third, and so on, then the task of making these selections can be done in P times Q times R different ways. For example, here's an easy example. If I have three shirts, four pants, and two pairs of sh- two pairs of shoes. Well, then, how many different outfits can I make? Three times four times two. Twenty-four different outfits. This is kind of an easy example to sort of get you thinking. Okay. For each choice of appetizer, here's an example, we have four choices of entree, and, oops, I must have skipped a problem, let me go back. So for each choice of appetizer, we have four choices of entree, and for each of these eight pairings, there are two choices for dessert. So basically, here's an example where if you have two choices for appetizers, um, four choices for entree, and of course this too represents the two choices for dessert, you've got a total of 16 different meals that can be ordered. That's just another illustration of that multiplication rule. Okay, if n is greater than or equal to 0 is an integer, then the factorial symbol n factorial, I remind you, is defined as n times n minus 1 times n minus 2 dot 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 all the way down to 1. Recall that 0 factorial is 1 and 1 factorial is also 1. So if it's been a while since you've seen the factorial notation, just wanted to refresh on that before we head into permutations and combinations. Solve counting problems using permutations. Permutation is an ordered arrangement in which R objects are chosen from N distinct objects, and repetition is not allowed. The symbol NPR, like that, represents the number of permutations of R objects selected from N objects. Um, If you were to do this, you know, by hand, using a formula, that would be N factorial minus N minus R N factorial divided by N minus R factorial. What we're going to do, though, is find that NPR button on our calculator in a moment here. Okay, let's try a problem. Number of permutations of N distinct objects taken R at a time uh, is given by this formula, which I just spoke about. How many ways can horses in a 10 horse race finish 1st, 2nd, and 3rd? So it's kind of like you've got 10 horses, you need to select 3, but there's that ranking characteristic. Notice the rank, that's your trigger that it's an NPR, okay? So we want 10P3, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd place horse, okay? Now, it's true, we could do the 10 factorial over 10 minus three, whole thing factorial. Or, we could, um, and I encourage you to do that, I'm not gonna do that on this slide. Um, I have other podcasts that show you where to access the NPR button on your calculator, but um, here's an illustration of of how you would do that. 10 times nine times eight times seven, all the way on down, and then divided by 7 factorial, well clearly the 7 factorial and the 7 factorial are going to cancel. So 10 times 9 times 8, you've got 720 ways for that to happen. Okay? Solve counting problems using combinations. I always tell people, if you do that horse problem that we just did, and there is no first, second, and third place, you're under a combination, not a permutation. Combination is a collection without regard to order of n distinct objects, and the notation we'll use is NCR, like that. um, Represents the number of combinations. Oh, and I did want to mention with combination notation, you know, you say 6 choose 2, sometimes this notation is used. So you might see that sort of parenthesis notation. It means the same thing. Um, So the symbol NCR uh, represents the number of combinations of n distinct objects taken r at a time. The formula for that would be n factorial, r factorial, n minus r factorial, such as you see here. Okay. How many different simple random samples of size 4 can be obtained from a population whose size is 20? Now, for starters, okay, that's 20, combination 4 like that, if we would to write it out 20 factorial, 20 minus 4 factorial, and then times 4 factorial. So that's if I, you know, was to write it out. Most people find their NPR button on the, uh, or their, excuse me, their NCR button on their calculator. But I'll just illustrate here, without a calculator. So there would be 20 factorial, 4 factorial, 16 factorial. And you'll notice if you start expanding that out, at some point, that's, those 16 factorials are going to, um, what happens is they're going to cancel. And it simplifies your calculations. So you could do this with even just a handheld calculator and not a graphing calculator, just a scientific. So it turns out there's 4,845 different simple random samples of size 4 from a population whose size is 20. Solve counting problems involving permutations with non distinct items. I always think of this. The, think of the Mississippi problem. Actually, before the Mississippi problem, let's think of This formula here is for non-distinct items. Let's think about distinct items a moment. I'm going to zoom in. How many ways can you arrange the letters in cat? CAT. Well, if you do it brute force, you might say, okay, C-A-T, C-T-A, T-A-C, T-C-A, and then, you know, A-T-C, a, C, T, something like that. Six waves, right? But you might be noticing there's three distinct letters, so you might be noticing the relationship between three and six. Hey, three factorial. So basically, three distinct letters, the answer is three factorial. What if you have non-distinct items? Okay? Such as Mississippi. So that's my next question. How many ways can you arrange, so by the way, this was was distinct letters, meaning no repetition. Mississippi, well notice that you know the S repeats itself four times, the I repeats itself four times, the P repeats itself twice, so the letters are not distinct. If they were all different letters, there's 11 letters, you know, slots all together, the answer would be 11 factorial. But, you're noticing I'm going to divide out by something. Aha! You're noticing I'm going to take the 11 factorial and divide it by the number of times s repeats itself, the number of times i repeats itself, the number of times p repeats itself. And I'm going to go ahead and, and crunch that out in the calculator. I think if you do, it ends up being like 34,650. Uh, that is to say that there would be 34,650 ways to arrange the letters in Mississippi, okay? So now you see the number of permutations of n objects where there are so many, you know, n1 of one kind, and n2 of another kind, and nk of another kind is given by this formula, okay? Um, this just a misprint and the it should be dots, an ellipsis. Okay? Let's try one, another one together. How many different vertical arrangements are there of ten flags if five are white, three are blue, and two are red? Well think I always think about the converse, you know, if the ten flags were all different colors, ten different colors, the answer would be ten factorial. But since they're not distinct, meaning there's repetitions of one color, repetitions of another color, ha! Now we know we're going to divide out. So now we see, if we crunch that out, 2,520 different arrangements. Okay, now, compute probabilities involving permutations and combinations, I believe is our last objective for this podcast. Um, In an urn, you have balls numbered 1 to 52. From this urn, 6 balls are randomly chosen without replacement. And for a $1 bet, a player chooses 2 sets of 6 numbers. To win, all 6 numbers must match those chosen from the urn. The order in which the balls are selected does not matter. What is the probability of winning the lottery? Let's take a closer look. The probability of winning is given by the number of ways a ticket could win divided by the size of the sample space. So each ticket has two sets of six numbers. So there are two chances of winning for each ticket. The sample space is the number of ways that six objects can be selected from 52 objects. So if you hit 52 choose 6 on your calculator, you get the number in the sample space. So you see there's, you know, over 20 million ways to select six objects from 52. Each ticket has two sets of six numbers, so a player has two chances of winning for each dollar. If E is the event winning a ticket, then basically you get, if you pay your dollar, you get two chances out of the total number of ways there are to select six from a group of 52. So you're looking, here's your probability, wow, all very close to zero, (laughs) slim chance of winning. If you want more than two in the numerator, then you've got to pay a lot more than a dollar. So in all, there's about a 1 in 10 million chance of winning the Illinois lottery. All right. Hope that helps with your probability review. Good luck.